Welcome to Past Perfect by CEU Medieval Radio. You're listening to an episode from our archives. For more recent episodes, head to podcast.ceu.edu. And if you want to keep up with the latest news about us, follow us on Facebook at CEU Medieval Radio, or visit our website at medievalradio.org. Thanks. This is Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. I'm joined today by uh, Professor Marianne Shaggy, a uh, professor in the Medieval Studies Department at Central European University in Budapest. Uh, she specializes not only on the late antique period, particularly the 4th century, but also the High Middle Ages in the 14th century, so very diverse uh, uh, range of interests. Thank you for uh, joining us today, Professor Shaggy. Thank you very much. So um, I guess uh, it makes sense to sort of have our uh, program work in a chronological fashion today. Uh, let's talk the 4th century. Um, I remember uh, one of your uh, research interests um, is about uh, interactions of paganism and Christianity in the 14th century, So, uh, and which, from the few readings I've done, is always presented as the sort of uh, dichotomous situation. Um, I mean, is it really so black and white where you're either a godless pagan or a pious Christian on one hand, or would you say it's more uh, more of a blend between the two? Absolutely, because uh, the 4th century is uh, uh, the mo- one of the most exciting periods of uh, uh, present-day historiography. So I think it's a perfect issue for past perfect. <laughs> uh, sometimes I have the feeling that we still live in the 4th century because really? <laughs> of these uh, dichotomies that we have constructed Uh, mostly in the 20th century. So these are categories that uh, don't prevail in in modern scholarship. What we are trying to do is to show that uh, it's very difficult to talk about, uh, as you said, faithless or or (laughs) impious pagans and uh, devout Christians today. So this is these are self definitions, uh, categories that uh, that were used in the time in the fourth century. But uh, but it's uh, the our picture is not that black and wi- white any longer, and uh, we are organizing actually in Rome in the uh, Academia d'Ungheria, in the Hungarian Academy uh, of Rome, a very interesting um, discussion in this coming uh, September with uh, uh, international scholars, American, British, French, uh, Italian scholars, on a re-evaluation of these um, uh, categories. Uh, Especially the the question uh, poses itself because we are uh, celebrating the uh, 1,700th anniversary of the Edict of Milan. (laughs) This is the famous conversion of uh, Emperor Constantine to Christianity. And this is when exactly these categories, pagan and Christian, are really introduced or reintroduced in uh, mostly Christian hagiography and Christian histor- historiography. Um, 
what we would like to see is whether paganism continued to function as a religion throughout the 4th or even into the 5th century in Rome. It, it's a very urban, very very civilized society. This is the biggest metropolis uh, of the world at that time, of the world of, of late antiquity. Mm-hmm. And archaeologists uh, are busy discovering functioning altars, functioning cult places, which show a much more open world than it had been imagined, which which showed that Christianity was a tolerant, integrative religion, as it actually uh, proved itself uh, to be in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, or in the in the tenth century, eleventh century, when we when we think of the conversion of the Hungarians, the Christianity or Catholic Christianity is really an integrative religion that welcomes other groups welcomes pagans as well. On the other hand, pagans are not this kind of uh, block-headed traditionalists, you know, dark reactionaries, but they are also very pious people who also look for a new definition of their own beliefs. And and, uh, I think that the most thrilling approach to to the religious history of late antiquity is is the one that shows that paganism and christianity are basically uh growing into one another so christian paganism grows into or develops into a kind of uh, uh thinking uh searching about the one the one which is god and and things like that so i think that that i hope that this mm-hmm. discussion will also show the the innovative uh uh research that that is being done on on this uh newly discovered period that is the 4th century how interesting are you um will will the focus mostly be on Roman paganism, or would it be incorporating, like, um, I don't know, um, paganism from north of the Alps, or the Isis cults from Egypt, or that um, uh, religions out, uh, out uh, east as well? We will focus only and exclusively on Rome, and okay. uh, we have a reason for that. A Hungarian scholar, András Alfredi, was the proponent in the 1930s of the idea that um, in Rome, uh, Constantine was the only Christian, and he had to struggle with a whole bunch of horrible pagans. So this is a very extremist view, which uh, had an immense success. It was a very uh, influential uh, historiographical um, thesis, which is called also the Alfredi thesis, uh, that had been completely deconstructed and almost disintegrated or wiped out by a recent book by Alan Cameron, professor of uh, uh, Latin and, and classics at Columbia University, uh, in a book entitled The Last Pagans of Rome. Mm-hmm. And he said that the last pagans of Rome are a uh, historiographical construction it's very difficult to point out who is the last pagan, and that's why I started with the with the idea that sometimes I do feel that we still live in the in the fourth century, because <laughs> it's 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 a question that we could ask: who is the last 
communist in the Soviet Union uh. or in <laughs> Russia today or in Hungary today. If we, can we point out that this guy is the last communist? And this is, I think, a, a question that we that we have to and we want to ponder when we approach the, the fourth century. Is there somebody who is the last uh, kind of standard bearer of the of a lost case or a seemingly uh, mm-hmm. losing uh, case? We have a number of pagans in Rome who had been proposed as the last. Uh, uh, proponents of this defunct and and uh, sort of moribund uh, religion, and what we want to see whether whether these last pagans were really pagans. For example, the last okay. pagan reaction in quotation mark was led by a well-known Christian, and hmm. so on and so on. So so things, uh, as I said, are not black and white. Definitely. And and we have to see why uh, uh, Rome had become such such a, a powerhouse of uh, of ideas of religious uh, renewal and of political renewal as well in the in the fourth century. Because don't forget that the the empire that Constantine founded on the basis or with the help of Christianity or with the help of the Christian religion lasted not only until 1453, uh, which is, let's say, the traditional approach. Mm-hmm. It was a very stable uh, v- uh, construction. It was a very solid empire. The money uh, that was called the solidus, in English, it is the solid bit. It was an <laughs> extremely strong money, which which uh, preserved its value for more than a thousand years. Yeah. So it's it's really remarkable. And all the inst- uh, the institutions that Constantine founded and sponsored and and promoted uh, survived not only until the fall of Constantinople in the 15th century, but way beyond in the Ottoman Empire. This is another interesting new uh, research and new approach to to uh, later uh, to the later history of of Byzantium. Um, uh, anyway, the the uh, question of um, uh, the solidity and the and the and the, the monarchy that that Constantine founded lasts not only, as I said, way beyond the fall of Constantinople, but even today. Today, monarchies are still founded on the union of the throne and the altar, mm-hmm. the union of uh, uh, political power and Christian religion sort of religious authority attached to it. Why, uh, this is going to be a pretty ridiculous question, but why would um, the members of these sort of last generation sort of keep the pagan faith? Um, Well, this is an interesting issue. Uh, Partly out of uh, tradition. This This was the tradition that they knew. Uh, but this was also the culture that they knew, and uh, and this is where the shift really occurs uh, in the third and fourth centuries. That pagan religion is an extremely complicated and extremely expensive religion. Because, for mm-hmm. example, when Julian, uh, the apostate, the 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 emperor who wants to turn back the wheel and and um, reinstall paganism as the state religion. 
what he does basically he first of all he copies the christian church because there is no such a thing as a pagan church paganism is a is a zillion of of local cults yeah every single village every single tree every single <laughs> Uh, city has its own local cult, and that's why it's so difficult to to unite them. This is one thing. So there is no uh, not a united uh, pagan front. The other thing is that it's expensive because uh, even um, the the um, very devout um, uh, followers of of Julian criticized uh, uh, him for. Uh, having extincted hordes of animals, you have to actually kill a lot of animals. <laughs> Lots of sacrifices. <laughs> Lots to of make. sacrifices, and and you know the blood sacrifices are really basically slaughtering of animals. And uh, Amianus Marcellinus, the great uh, uh, historian and great pagan historian of Rome, criticizes uh, Julian for for having wiped out entire herds from Asia Minor and, and Greece. So this is also an expensive kind of thing. Mm. Uh, Christianity is much cheaper, much more <laughs> cost uh, <effective>. efficient. <laughs> yeah, it's much more cost effective, much more efficient also to, to hold together uh, different um, classes and different um, um, strides of society and i think this is the most innovative side of side of christianity that we always forget to mention that uh, paganism is not only local it's also intensely uh, class conscious and um, profession conscious Uh, different professions uh, adored different deities for example shoemakers would never mix with bookbinders or scroll mm-hmm. uh, makers. Um, women could never mix with men. Mm-hmm. Um, upper classes would never mix with lower classes, and so on and so on. So, as opposed to Christianity, where, which is the only and the first uh, religion in uh, antiquity in which men and women can take place in the same celebration in the same locals. This is an absolute innovation. I mean, if you think of Judaism even today, men and women are separated. In Islam, men and women are separated. In the the Christian church, interestingly, that is also uh, very often forgotten that men and women had to sit in different rows yet within the same space. So in the same space, but uh, in different rows in the in the early, early modern period. Hmm. But in late antiquity and in modern times, you shared the same sacred space and without any uh, problems. No, no distinction among no dis- um, Among the sexes, no distinction among uh, economic uh, classes and, and social classes. So that this is this is what Constantine realized probably that this if you want to have a a strong and unified empire if you want to reach more people it it was also a media revolution sort of because once uh, the the bishop or the emperor said something it was very it spread very very widely and very quickly 
in in more than one strata of society, not just in the elite. It was not an elite uh, religion, and that's why already in the 1950s, Santo Mazzarini, an Italian historian, proposed uh, a very interesting uh, thesis about the democratization of ancient culture. And to get back to your question, why uh, why uh, uh, certain people in 4th century Rome would stick to the old religion because it was the only culture that there was. Mm-hmm. Culture was also intensely religious. Virgil, which, which was the first and almost the only book that everybody read in the ancient world, is full of references to the uh, ancient sacrifices and so on and so on. Nobody understood this in the fourth century. That was the interesting thing, and that was very well pointed out by St. Augustine, that you you claim to be a pagan, but you you have no idea (laughs) what it really means to, to be, because you don't slaughter animals, you don't... Uh, do exactly the the rites as as it is described in Virgil and so on and so on, uh-huh. and that's why the grammarians had such an important role by the fourth century because it was them who explained to the readers, to the avid readers of Virgil, what Virgil actually means when he uses this and this world, because o- already the words lost their meaning right. for for the new generation. So it was like a nostalgic. You know, like we also have this retro fashions mm-hmm. that we like to have a retro hamburger or <laughs> a retro rock and roll uh, party. And this is exactly, I think, in part that uh, that the last pagans wanted to do to revive the the old traditions of Rome. Give me that old time religion. <laughs> All right. But uh, if I may, because you you also asked uh, an important thing uh, in your first question, whether we we will focus only on Rome, or whether the paganism issue is really only in Rome, or whether we will expand uh, our scope to the east or to other mm-hmm. areas of uh, of uh, the ancient world. Uh, yes, we will. Uh, in uh, twelve, no, in two thousand thirteen, when we actually celebrate the um, the uh, edict of of Milan, uh, the workshop at CU at Central European University will mm-hmm. f- be a follow up of the Rome Conference on Pagans and Christians, but with a much mi- wider scope. So okay. it will include also the Eastern Empire. Uh, the fifth century, the uh, conversion of uh, of uh, barbaric or German uh, hordes, and so on and so on. Well, very exciting. We mentioned earlier that uh, Professor Shaggy specializes not only in uh, fourth century uh, late antique uh, Rome, but also in the fourteenth century. As well, so I wanted to ask you if uh, are there really any parallels between um, the fourth century and the fourteenth century that you can think of? Absolutely, I think <laughs> that the fourth century and the fourteenth century are not only easy to remember. But I'm not a great mathematician. I have done <laughs> mathematics all the time in high school because I was kind of weakish <laughs> in that. <laughs> And so it's it's not just that I added or removed a, a thousand one, years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, 
but <laughs> I also feel that uh, in terms of uh, cultural and religious interest and change, uh, these are two kernels of of um, uh, European civilization and ru- European history. Uh, we mentioned the the cultural interest of the of the last Romans in fourth century in Virgil in Homer in everything that is old and and traditional and everything which is great fun great mm-hmm. writing great epic sure, poetry. Sure, sure. I mean this is really. I mean, uh, the Aeneid is really um, a foundational, the foundational charter of uh, of uh, European literature, and the same happens in the 14th century. The rediscovery of the true Virgil, the rediscovery of true uh, Latin style, of good Latin style, writing well in Latin. Uh, this kind of uh, Cicero mania of <laughs> Petrarch in the in the fourth century is a sign of of some very deep seated um, search for the ancient roots of our culture, and and this is not that far from fourth century interests as well. And this is how I feel. Why is there sort of this renewed interest in the uh, antique past? Is there any? cause or causes late antiquity is always later than we think okay uh peter brown the great uh, founder of of this uh, discipline mm-hmm. uh, or this branch of of historiography that is now called late antiquity the maiden name of our period was early christianity <laughs> so <Okay>. or <laughs> And and it had been changed into late antiquity because it's more inter- integrative. Yes. Um, so Peter Brand said that uh, he still feels that he lives in the middle of the of the of late antiquity. So the twenty first century is just <laughs> another great late antique uh, revival. <laughs> uh, when you ask why is this renewed interest in antiquity? The answer is that uh, antiquity has never died. It had always been there. It had always uh, everything that uh, that came after the, let's say, after the first uh, first century, is just a rethinking of the of the ancient heritage and uh, and it, it in a very enriching way. So the antique heritage is is there and and culture is basically a new response to what we already have what the the great thinkers plato homer uh, pythagoras uh, virgil had put down and uh, in the, in the 4th century they are, they are already quite they feel that they are quite distant from this from this past and they want to give a renewed answer what what are we to do with it and this is exactly the the um, response of the 14th century as well the 14th century feels that uh, between the 4th and the, and the 14th century there had been a thousand years of of dark ages it's actually petrarch who invents the the notion of the middle ages saying that uh, between me, <laughs> the the new Cicero, the the guy who found 
the most uh, letters discovered, the, the most letters of, of Cicero. <laughs> and Cicero, I see a big gap, a big dark gap, and, and this is a kind of uh, media etas between the beloved uh, classical period and the, the new ages. Uh, Petrarch sees himself as somebody fundamentally modern. Mm -hmm. uh, the 14th century is a very happy and very optimistic period. They, everything is new for them. Mm -hmm. the, uh, Ars Nova is the name that they give to the music that they play. Uh, Devotio Moderna is the religion uh, of the 14th century and so on and so on. So they, know, they are aware of this modernism, modernism mm -hmm. of their moderni modernity, that this is a modern approach to the antique. And I haven't met St. Augustine, so we can, we, unfortunately we cannot have a face-to-face -face, uh, interview uh, with him. But right. I, I really wonder whether he did not think himself as somebody who asks new questions about all things. And this is basically our own task and our, our own uh, interest as well when we are doing history. We want to ask new questions to all things. And in this sense, we can learn quite a bit from late antique and 14th century or Trecento thinkers. Definitely. I, I, de I definitely agree that that's... Uh that's one of the most important things that, um, you know, historical disciplines can offer. Um, I have to ask, um, in the 14th century, is there any, um, how do, how do Christian authors feel about pagan sources? The, there, there's on one hand a I can imagine there's on one hand a great sort of respect for the the prose and the language used, but is there sort of a is there sort of a tension because of religious and theological issues um, when these 14th century authors are looking at these older sources? Yes and no. Uh, one uh, interesting feature of uh, the Middle Ages is the the lack of historical sense. Uh, they are they have a completely anachronistic approach to to the past up to Petrarch, up to the uh, 14th century. Mm -hmm. Petrarch is really the guy who invents our historical sense. Uh, in the during the Middle Ages, throughout, uh, if you if you go in any part of Europe and you open a book or you go to a castle and you see the seven no the nine nine heroes of the of the medieval world three biblical heroes three classical heroes and three let's say contemporary or or medieval heroes mm -hmm. they are they all look alike they are uh. all represented the same i mean king david wears the exact same <laughs> clothes as uh, saint louis of france <laughs> right uh Alexander the Great looks exactly like Charlemagne. There is no difference. They, d they don't have the, per the perception that, that, they, that these guys had a different sense of fashion or whether they wore different weapons or mm -hmm. not at all. But it also uh, reveals that a much deeper uh, affinity or a much deeper closeness to the past. The, the medieval 
people don't feel that they are medieval. They are not aware that they okay. are they are medieval until Petrarch tells them that they are. <laughs> 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 they feel that they are just like King David, or they could be just like mm -hmm. King David, or they could be just another um, Alexander the Great. And this is this also gives a great great strength to their culture that you mm. can be anything. You can be anything anytime. Uh, Petrarch says, no, you can't be. Cicero had been, and we are not uh, Cicero any mm -hmm. longer, mm -hmm. unless you read my works. <laughs> <laughs> but, Amazing but, how that works. But, but even me, I, I fear that how far removed I am from Cicero. So this is, this is the sense of history that he really invents. I see. And previously, nobody had this feeling. Nobody felt that, that wow, how, how far I am from Cicero or from uh, Sallust or uh, Juvenal or, or St. Jerome, for example. What is also very much interesting, and, and it's, it, this is also a kind of affinity between the 4th and the 14th century, that St. Jerome, uh, the great uh, father of the, of the Latin Church, in the fourth century, was also an avid reader of Cicero. He once dreamt that uh, that he was uh, standing in front of uh, the tribunal uh, of Jesus in the last judgment, and Jesus asked him, "Who are you?" And he said, "Christianus sum." Mm -hmm. And Christ told him, "Not at all. You are not a Christianus. You are a Ciceronianus <laughs> because you you are what you are reading, oh. <laughs> and and you read Cicero all the time. So then you don't have anything to do with with uh, Christianity. This." dichotomy or contrast or even opposition between the Christian religion and the pagan authors had been very very well seen and very well very much felt both in the fourth and in the fourteenth century. In the fourteenth century I think that the the pagan threat or the the pagan danger is much less. So they, right. they don't have this um, fear any longer that you cannot read Tullius because you will be tainted by <laughs> or infected by some dangerous virus of of uh, pagan faith or pagan pagan religion the other thing is with with paganism is that it's not really a faith it's rather a right you don't have to really believe in venus or in in Jupiter, you have to offer a cultic rite to them. You have you have mm -hmm. to offer a little. You have to perform this liturgy, and that's it. And then whatever you think, it's your business. Mm -hmm. But you, nobody really, I think, believes in Zeus or mm -hmm. in in Demeter or whatever. This is uh, they they are the founders it's or the patrons of local cultic communities and these cultic communities pay their due by the ritual but it's not really a faith mm -hmm. and once uh, Christianity had become a, a very intense intensive personal belief or personal faith then the danger uh, of being tainted by any kind of pagan um, bacteria is much less there by the 4th century Thank you very much. Good food for thought. 
Right. So we um very very wide range of interests that we have here. Um, and one of the things that um part of this show wants to concentrate on is sort of you know addressing stereotypes that we have about the Middle Ages. So turning more towards the 14th century uh, now. I mean, there is this idea in this period that it's very regional that it's you know it doesn't matter if you are in Sweden or if you are in southern Italy that they, there's this idea that um really you you the average person won't see much outside of their own particular village um is there any sort of truth to this um uh, notion of uh, regionalism for this part of history Regionalism, uh, local consciousness, and also national consciousness uh, are very much there in the in the 14th century. That's true. That, on the one hand, people perhaps don't fly as much as we do <laughs> in the 21st <laughs> century. On the other hand, they do uh, move quite a bit. So. I w- wouldn't say that they they don't really know anything outside of their village. This is certainly not true for for a large uh, segment of of the society. Peasants obviously they they um. are bound to be uh to their lands and to work on their lands. So I this is the um, this is the gr- largest uh, population in in medieval Europe, so certainly they would be mm, sitting mostly at home or or working mostly in their mm-hmm. in their lands. But even even in in a in the case of of a peasant uh, society, it's not excluded that they they go to the markets or discover some some new. Uh, even regional uh, geographical uh, novelty. And then there are other classes, knights, for example, who travel all the time, who go to the Holy Land and who bring back novelties and new products and new ideas from from the East. Um, there are also churchmen who travel almost by obligation because they are mm-hmm. appointed here and there. Uh, monks uh, who we would think that that they are they have to sit in their monasteries because uh, Saint Benedict in his rule also prescribed a kind of stabilitas loci uh, stay in the monastery don't move mm-hmm. and yet monks travel surprisingly much in the in the 14th century uh, writers poets um singers uh also or you know these cultural ambassadors also uh zigzag in in Europe so i think that uh while it's very much true that the national feeling which is also very much bound to what you have said about regionalism or regional consciousness the national feeling, uh, the first signs of, of a national consciousness are detectable precisely in the 14th century. The first um, um, actual signs of uh, nationhood, such as banners or coats of arms uh, in Hungary, for example, mm-hmm. appear in the, in the 14th century. And yet, 
this is still a very global society. Christendom is a global affair. It's a global business. And uh, and in this respect, I wouldn't say that uh, that the 14th century is really a closed and self-consciously uh, uh, local uh, world. Um, are there any... So for, for people traveling then or going outside of their, you know, city, town, village, um, what sort of routes um, would be popular? Would going to the Holy Land be the most popular uh, way to travel for most people? Well, by the 4th century, uh, the Holy Land becomes uh, a little bit dangerous. Yes. And, uh, and uh, there are the Turkish... Uh, uh Mamluks and and the Turkish uh, pirates who uh who make um, travel to the Holy Land more difficult than than it used to be um, before in the 12th or 13th centuries mm-hmm. another favorite route would be and i think that this would be the the major uh road of pilgrimage is to Rome and we should not forget that the old Roman root system is still uh, an existing and and very much used uh, root system in the in the Middle Ages. Uh, the The other big uh, uh, pilgrimage uh, routes leads to Compostela in Spain. In Spain, and a third one to uh, uh, the shrine of Saint Michael in uh, Normandy. This is also a very favorite uh, destination. So I think Jerusalem, Rome, Compostela would be the three destinations for uh, the religious tourist, for the discerning religious tourist. (laughs) But uh, Jerusalem is removed more and more from from the actual uh, guidebooks or, or tour destinations and uh, and is more and more replaced by Rome. Also because Rome does a kind of self-promotion by introducing the Holy Year in 1300. This is the first Holy Holy Year which brings millions of tourists, uh, literally millions of tourists, uh, tourists uh, to Rome and, uh, and brings a lot of wealth uh, to Rome. It is a, uh, in connection somehow with the revival of what we have said, the revival of uh, uh, antiquity, the revival of interest in the tradition of the Roman bishopric, of the Roman papacy. And also later on through, uh, throughout the, the 14th century, this very intense um, propaganda for the uh, resettling or settling of the papacy in Rome. Uh, Interestingly, the papacy, albeit we always speak about the the Roman papacy, and indeed this is a correct uh, description, but the popes had not resided in Rome before the the 13th century as much as we like to think. So, for example, in the 10th, 11th, 12th century, popes very often were outside of Rome, partly because of the unhealthy 
meteorological conditions Mm -hmm. (laughs) prevailing in the eternal city. It's too hot in the summer. Okay, right. It's too too much fruit by various diseases like malaria because of the marshes and the... the, um, uh, the waterways uh, around Rome, and uh, it's too far away from from uh, uh, important centers uh, or important uh, countries uh, of of Christianity. So, for example, in this respect, Avignon was a much better mm-hmm. uh, located center for for the papacy because it was much closer to England and Spain where from where much of the wealth of the papacy also came hmm. not talking about France which was yes <laughs> which was a, a major contributor to the papal um, treasury okay um now so um r- remind me again i mean the the, the period in in, in Avign- where the where the po- a papacy is in avignon that's at the end of the 14th century yeah that's true um, that's uh, basically from uh, 1307 to 1377 uh, okay. so it's for, for right in the middle for 70 years I see. basically the 14th century is marked by the avignon papacy and then petrarch um, saint catherine of siena and and uh, saint uh, Bridget of Sweden, all make a huge propaganda saying that the Pope should move back to, to Rome. Mm-hmm. But where to? This is the other the other issue because whereas in Avignon they have a, they have developed a wonderful palace, a wonderful administrative system, a wonderful court, a, p- a real paper court, all this was lacking in in um, Rome. So Avignon is really the the period w- of the modernization of the papacy as well. Mm that they de- they developed the first working administrative and bureaucratic system that will be the model for for all secular states later on in the middle ages because imagine yourself without uh, a bank card how to make yeah. uh, wires and transfers um uh, towards a central bank, and this is the the problem that they solved in the 14th century. How do monies coming from Transylvania, from mm-hmm. Sweden, and from uh, Scotland arrive and and be uh, be there on time in the papal treasury mm-hmm. in Avignon? Because all these all these uh, countries send their Send their tithes to to the papacy. The and the the money of Saint Peter should be should be sent there. Peter's pennies. How do how, pennies. how how do they solve that issue? Well, this is this <laughs> is the 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 new um, uh, economic and financial uh, measures that the Avignon papacy takes. That that they accept partly uh, thanks to the Templars. They accept. Uh, uh, Let's say, for example, you you are in Transylvania, mm-hmm. and you want to send uh, uh, money to to Avignon. We have an interesting uh, um, document, or several interesting documents about the papal legates 
collecting monies in in 14th century Hungary. One of them is a Frenchman, I think, and the other is an Italian. And they suddenly they 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 collect all the the tides, the Peter's pennies. And then suddenly they disappear. They disappear for 20 years. <laughs> and we would say that, of course, they, they, they escape with the money. And they, they found a, a nice place where they live. <laughs> and then we have all the documents uh, in which the paper court inquires about their whereabouts. And then finally they reappear and they resurface. And they have the money. They still have the money. They, they, they didn't st- spend <laughs> any of them or, or or the the largest bulk of the money is still there and then suddenly they they uh, decide to go back and and to send the together with the money and to go to to Avignon so this is one possibility that that you send people and they okay. will collect the money for you and then sooner or later they will arrive Another possibility is that you accept uh, transfers, and this is what the Templars introduce, that you just uh, uh, give the money to a, a local representative somewhere in Transylvania, and then instead of the actual money, this, this local representative will send a letter mm-hmm. to a bank, let's say, in, in Florence, which will then transfer the money to Avignon, which so you you basically save almost a thousand kilometer distance mm-hmm. by this this uh, letter writing and and uh, this is a remarkable system not just the the transfers but but the actual collection of of physical money which is a big bulk of gold and silver and in the 13th, in late 13th, early 14th century, when there is a big conflict between the king of uh, France and and the papacy, one of the measures that the king of France takes is to prohibit the export of uh, precious metal from the kingdom, which is the death of the paper treasury, basically, because France is one of the big... Uh, Payers or mm-hmm. the big, uh, big, uh, uh, you know, ecclesiastical uh, payers uh, into the the paper treasury, and once they cannot bring out these these monies, that's that's a very very bad situation, which is very quickly solved partly by the by the introduc- introduction of the holy year that we have to celebrate this holy year you will get plenary indulgence if you come and then thousands of pilgrims uh, millions of pilgrims flock into the uh, the city and spend 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 <laughs> so this is really the dream of <laughs> of uh, uh, every every uh, economy in distress <laughs> no kidding <laughs>